You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. Well, good to see you today. Uh, you're, I guess, the group that is not traveling for spring break, or maybe you've already done that, and now you're back. I know we're kind of between... Uh, spring breaks. Uh, some had spring break last week, so you're coming off that. Uh, some are starting spring break this next week, but it's good to see you. You may have a few more people joining us online today, uh, and if that is you, we want to welcome you. Uh, thankful for the technology that allows you to join in virtually, even when maybe you are traveling and that kind of thing. And uh, thank you for asking about my hearing aids. Some of you, I mentioned last week that I had to get hearing aids. Um, here's the thing you need to know. I can hear you snoring in church now, okay? So there you go. I'm getting used to it, uh, adjusting and all those things. It is nice to be able to hear most things. Um, let's take our Bibles. John chapter 4. We're continuing through the Gospel of John this morning in our current sermon series called Person of Interest. And for the past couple of weeks, we've been uh, looking at a conversation between Jesus and an unnamed a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in Sychar. And in the first part of this conversation, this divine appointment between Jesus and this Samaritan woman, Jesus offered her life-giving, soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching living water. And that living water, of course, uh, is an image of God's satisfying salvation, of his rich uh, everlasting blessing, eternal life and joy found uh, through life in Christ that flows from him and from him alone. And last week, uh, we saw where Jesus exposed some things about this Samaritan woman to help her better understand uh, her need for the true living water that he offered her there at the well on that day. And so when Jesus points out her sin, her first thought was that Jesus would want her to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. She thought salvation was something she did. But Jesus instructs her about the true nature of salvation. Salvation is not something we do. It's something God does for us. He saves us. And so we want to pick it up here in John chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 27 and read down through verse 38. So I hope that you'll follow along this morning as I read. Just then, his disciples came back. Remember, they had gone to get food. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ, the Messiah? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Uh, life is made up of a lot of decisions. 
Uh, some that we think about quite a lot and others that we don't give much thought to. There are things that uh, we fundamentally decide to do each day without giving it a whole lot of thought. Like hopefully you got up and brushed your teeth this morning before you came to church. Okay, you fundamentally had to make the decision to do that, but you probably didn't give that a whole lot of thought because you just kind of do it habitually, right? But there are other things in life that are far more significant. Some of our decisions are made out of pure biological necessity. We eat because we're hungry. We drink water because we're thirsty. We sleep because we're tired. But that doesn't really cover many of the decisions that we make on a regular basis. And so what drives your decision-making? What guides you in your decision-making? Um, and so, you know, in, in a lot of cases, it's simply based on preference. You make a decision to eat at a particular restaurant because you like that restaurant better than some other restaurants. You, you, you choose one type of food over another type of food because that's what you prefer. You choose chocolate ice cream because it is clearly better than vanilla ice cream. And so <laughs> it's just based on your preference, Right. But other decisions are not quite like that. They're far more significant. Even in some cases having eternal implications. And so if you have a more long-range perspective for decision-making, it may be driven in some cases by a desire to save money for college, for example. Some people are in that stage of life. Or maybe it's a, a big purchase that you're looking toward, or a nice vacation maybe, or maybe your efforts are geared toward trying to get a promotion at work, or, or a desire to spend more time with your family. And those, those, those things all are a part of life many times. But, but where does God come into the picture in your decision-making? Are we guilty of mostly asking him to bless our desires and our plans, or are we taking time to align our priorities and our desires with his agenda for the world, for the church, and for our lives? In today's passage, Jesus tells the disciples what drives his decision-making, and that is a powerful statement. He says it this way, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, that's kind of a strange statement to us. He calls his disciples also to raise their eyes above their normal perspective when he tells them, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He wants them to, to, to have a, a different perspective. And so as we explore this passage, we're really going to focus on those two themes, meals and mission. The food that should fuel our lives and the fields that we need to look up and see. See what God is doing around us. One of the, one of the great joys of being a pastor is that I often, uh, by the grace of God, get a front row seat to see the work that God is doing in people's hearts and lives. And there's a lot I don't know, clearly. Never will know this side of eternity, I'm sure. But it's amazing when God gives you that privilege, that opportunity to, to see what God is doing in different hearts and lives as, he, as, as he's working in people's lives through different seasons of life. And sometimes it's through the, uh, the mountaintops. And sometimes it's in the midst of the valley that God is working in lives. We have to gain that perspective. So our passage today begins right after Jesus' conversation with this Samaritan woman, right after it ends, essentially. It says, just then his disciples came back. Now notice how perfect God's providence is. The disciples have been in town buying food, and now they return to the well with food at exactly the right moment. 
If they had come back any earlier, then they would have likely interrupted Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman. The conversation uh, may have not reached its wonderful conclusion. If they had come back any later, then they wouldn't have seen Jesus talking with the woman, wouldn't have had any cause to, uh, to wonder what was going on, which then prompts Jesus' engagement with them. You see, aligning our agenda and our desires with God's, uh, with God's will and God's design, God's desires, must begin with a full knowledge of and strong confidence in his wonderful sovereign providence over and in and through all things. That means the good, the bad, and the ugly. And for most of us, if we were completely honest, we were to look back over our lives, we would say, the times that I grew the most... The times that I matured the most in my faith, the times that I became more like Jesus Christ, were actually not when things were going great. It was when I was forced to my knees in utter dependence upon God. It was in a season when I didn't understand what God was doing. What was going on around me? It was a time of uncertainty. It was a time of confusion. It was a time when I was maybe even gripped by fear. What is God doing in the midst of those things? What drives us to see the world through that lens that God is always working? Now, I want you to notice as we consider uh, the food that Jesus speaks of here that is, is, is clearly for him is to do the will of the Father. I want you to notice that it was not based upon social customs or expectations. It says here that the disciples, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? You see, you got to remember now that Jewish social custom looked down on men who spoke with women, especially rabbis. Rabbis were not supposed to talk with, with, uh, with any women in public for two reasons. If they were talking to someone other than their wife, then it could cause scandalous gossip. If they were talking to any woman, including their wives in some cases, it would be often considered wasting time that could be spent either studying Torah uh, and or teaching men. Teaching women was definitely considered a waste of time. And so Jesus was engaged in a conversation with a woman, not only a woman, but one who had a bit of a reputation, as we've learned, which is the worst possible kind of woman for a rabbi to be seen talking to. Moreover, he had initiated the conversation, which the disciples didn't necessarily know, but still the very fact that this conversation was even happening caused them to marvel. It's a word which means they were amazed. I don't don't know that they were necessarily shocked or scandalized in that sense. I don't think they they would have suspected Jesus of any wrongdoing or anything inappropriate. I think it appears that they were amazed at how Jesus would refuse to be bound by social customs. And that was common. If you study the life and ministry of Jesus, you know that he often ran afoul of the religious leaders of the day because these things didn't constrain him. I mean, they often had issues with the way that he and his disciples did things and ministered and and on which days they ministered and and how they did or didn't wash their hands and all of the things. Their Phariseeism had had risen to a whole other level. And so they often found Jesus uh, violating those things. But I want you to also notice it wasn't based on materialism. Rather than asking Jesus about his conversation with the woman, which they were I suppose, too amazed to do, the disciples instead offer him some of the food that they had gone into town to buy. They had probably set some food out, and seeing that Jesus was not eating it, they urged him, Rabbi, eat. It just kind of reminds me of my Nana, my dad's mom. Her love language was cooking for her family. 
All right? There is no better way for her to express love for us than to cook a meal for us. She loved to know that when we left her house, we were full. And I can remember a few times sitting there, and I had already eaten like one chicken fried steak and a big heaping of mashed potatoes and whatever else she had provided. And I'm thinking, I'm about done. And she's like, Mike, aren't you going to eat? I'm like, Nana, I've eaten a whole plate. But, but I made you a couple more chicken fried steaks. And I'm thinking, I can't possibly eat that much food. So here, the disciples had gone to get Jesus some food. They come back, and Jesus isn't just scarfing the food down. Jesus replies to their offer and their urging with an unexpected response. I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now, the way the disciples respond to that statement shows us that their thinking was no more on spiritual or profound things than that of the Samaritan woman when she wanted Jesus to give her a supply of water that would keep her from having to come back to the well from that day forward. They are very simply focused on fleshly concerns and not much more. I think most of us can identify with that. I mean, we have a saying today that, you know, you're hangry. Some of y'all know how to get hangry, right? Like, when you get hungry, really hungry, there's a whole lot of other stuff that doesn't matter in that moment until you get some food, right? <laughs> well, I think that's kind of where the disciples were right now. Uh, they'd been traveling with Jesus. They'd come to this place where I, we're, we're hungry. And it's just crazy to us that Jesus is not partaking of this food that we've gone to the trouble to go into town and to purchase. He hasn't done that. And so Jesus essentially has to, to correct them. Uh, he replies to their offer uh, with this unexpected response. I have food to eat that you don't know about. The way those disciples respond to that shows that they're thinking about merely physical things. Now understand this, physical, material things are important in their proper place. We live in a physical world. Okay, These bodies have to be fueled. You can't go uh, forever and not rest. You've you got to stop. Uh, and, and so there, there are things that we need out of necessity, and as important as those things are in their proper place, uh, we can so easily become overly focused and overly concerned about physical things, the things of this world, and more importantly, just temporal things in general, the things that we can see and feel and touch and that make life in this world more comfortable. We can easily be consumed by those things as if they are most important. And Jesus is setting an example here and saying, that's not what's most important in this moment. That's not what's most important. Now make no mistake, in his humanity, Jesus grew hungry. And he grew thirsty. We know that. And he grew tired even. And so he's not saying that food in and of itself is not in any way important. He's just saying sometimes there are other things that are more important as a matter of priority. And that is doing the will of the Father. So Jesus, without openly rebuking the disciples for their materialistic, fleshly assumptions, he tells them clearly what he meant by the food that he has that they don't know about. It's not like he's got a stash of burgers or something. That's not what he's saying. Okay, he's saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. To do the will of him who sent me. That's important language in scripture. In fact, this is the first time of nine different times in the gospel of John when Jesus refers to God the Father as he who sent me. 
Listen to just a few, uh, to some of those. In John chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. In John chapter 5, verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John chapter 6, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he goes on to say, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In chapter 7, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. In John chapter 9, we must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. There's that language again of him who sent me. Jesus cried out and said in John chapter 12, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. John chapter 15, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And in John chapter 16, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? So we'll look more closely at each of those verses when we come to them in our study of the Gospel of John. But for now, I think it's important for us to see how much Jesus saw himself as a sent one. As a sent one. Sent from God the Father to the world to do the Father's will and to accomplish his work. We could say it this way. He was a man on a mission. He was a man on a mission. And we sometimes use that language in our culture. You hear it said of a great athlete who seems to be especially focused in, and he's just like, I mean, he's tearing it up on the basketball court or whatever. He's like a man on a mission, right? What we mean is that that person seems to be focused in on what he's doing in the moment. He's, he's got a mission. Well, that was Jesus. And the expression that Jesus uses here in John chapter 4 to describe accomplishing or finishing God's work uses the same verb that he would cry out on the cross when he cried, it is finished. It is finished. So Jesus was sent to accomplish the work of God and he did that work until it was finished on the cross. That's what he was talking about. He was talking about the mission for which he'd been sent was now finished. When Jesus left the world to return to the Father, he commissioned his disciples to be apostles, which means sent ones. And he said to them, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now we know that you and I are not the Messiah. Nor are we technically apostles. But we have been sent. Do we have the, the same sense of our identity as sent ones? Sent by God into the world to do his will? That's why we as followers of Jesus Christ have what is called the Great Commission. It's like these, these are your marching orders. This is, this is what you're to do. This is what I'm sending you to do. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Even as I am sent, so send I you. And that brings us to the second big theme of our text here, and that is mission. Or what Jesus refers to as the fields 
of the harvest. When Jesus wants the disciples to see for themselves that what God is calling them to have as their food, he tells them to look up and to look beyond themselves. You need a new perspective. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. I don't know about you, but uh, for many years in my Christian journey, when I read that text, when I heard that text, I envisioned Jesus standing in the middle of a wheat field, maybe. And using that as a, as a clear example to his disciples to, to look at the fields, they're white unto harvest. I'm not sure that's exactly how it went down, though. When you look at this text here in John chapter 4, I think it probably looked a little bit different. The disciples do need to look up from the food that is in front of them and see the harvest field that is literally coming toward them. Jesus begins by saying, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? He's either quoting a proverb here about the time between the sowing of seed and the beginning of the, of the harvest for the reaping. Or else he's quoting something that they were just talking about in conversation. We don't know that with certainty. The harvest season's still four months away, which... Uh, some commentators would say suggest that they're here in Samaria sometime early in January. Either way, Jesus wants them to look up and to see that the fields are white for harvest. So what are they seeing? Well, they're seeing some unexpected people. What Jesus wants his disciples to see is a crowd of unexpected people coming their way. The Samaritans from the village of Sychar were coming out to the well to see Jesus. And they are coming in response to the testimony of the Samaritan woman with whom Jesus had just had a conversation. Scripture tells us here in 28 through 30, verses 28 through 30. So the woman left her water jar, went away into town, and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that, ever I, that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? In other words, can this be the Messiah? And it says, Then they, plural, we don't know exactly how many. They went out of the town and were coming to him. This woman left her water jar behind, uh, as opposed to Jesus could have the drink that he had asked her for initially, and also because I think she knew she was coming back to talk to Jesus some more. She just wanted to bring more people with her. If the disciples were shocked to see Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman, then they had to have been really shocked to look up and see at least a small group of Samaritans heading right toward them. And given the history of hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, the disciples might have been just a bit afraid to see a Samaritan crowd coming in their direction. But these Samaritans weren't angry. They were curious. They were curious. You see, they had an unexpected reaction. The Samaritans had heard the testimony of this Samaritan woman. Remember this woman who uh, had apparently been marginalized to a large degree by her, by her society, including these people, I believe. And they had an, a most unexpected reaction. They believed her. They listened to what she had to say and believed her at least enough to be intrigued and to follow her out to see Jesus. Now, now, what she said to them was a slight exaggeration, right? Come see a man that told me all that I ever did. But the heart of what she meant was true enough. It was to her as if he knew everything about her. 
Because he had revealed some things to her that, that nobody else would, would know in most cases. It wasn't as if Jesus could do a Google search on her before they had a conversation, right? A people search. I'm going to find out some stuff about I'm going to check out her Facebook profile. I'm going to... It wasn't like that. So it was clear to her that, that, that Jesus was someone who possessed supernatural power from God. Jesus had told her that he was the Messiah, and she apparently thought that he was because she wanted to know what the rest of the people in her town thought. She asked them, can this be the Christ? Can this possibly be the Messiah in a way that invited them to come and draw their own conclusions? The courage of this Samaritan woman who overcame in that moment the shame of her past to openly engage her neighbors in conversation and the unexpected response of her fellow townspeople, you combine that with God's sovereign plan, and what does that do? That brings people to Jesus. That brings people to Jesus. But then I want you to notice this group of unprepared disciples. The disciples, completely unprepared here. They'd just been in the town for some, some period of time, we don't know exactly how long, buying food. We don't know how long they spent on this errand, but evidently they didn't speak to people about Jesus or try to get any of the Samaritans to come and, and see him. Meanwhile, this woman goes into town and within a few moments is on her way back with a group of these Samaritans following her. Jesus' unprepared disciples, whose minds are only on their grumbling stomachs, are about to enter into the joy of a harvest that they had not worked to produce. And that's why we have this language of a prepared field. You see, the disciples were being drawn into a field that they had not prepared, but which had been prepared for them. Notice what it says in verses 36 through 38. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now, I want to remind you, if you're uh, familiar with the Old Testament, in foretelling the coming of the Messiah and the dawning of the Messianic Age, Amos, the Old Testament farmer prophet, was given a word from the Lord. And we find that in Amos chapter 9, verse 13. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I think here, we're seeing this prophecy coming to fruition with these Samaritans. Jesus had just sown the seed in this woman's heart, and already within minutes, she has come to eternal life, and now she is bringing more people with her. Jesus told the disciples that others have labored, probably referring to John the Baptist and himself. Since John had been ministering in that area, perhaps a few weeks or even months before this encounter. And he now tells them that he is sending them to reap that for which they did not labor. They will get the privilege of rejoicing together with the sower, Jesus himself, at the joy of harvest. One of the things that has amazed me over 30-some years of ministry is the way in which God puts together his church. We're told in Scripture very clearly that we have differing gifts, differing passions. 
We're, we're, we're wired differently. And, all this, and God uses all of those things. Everybody playing their part. Everybody doing what they can do with what they have, where they are, for the sake of the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. We can't all do the same things. We're not all gifted in exactly the same ways. But God uses all of that together to see his kingdom grow. So long as we are faithfully serving together, using the giftedness that God has wired within us. Sometimes you may be the person who plants that seed. And if I were to hear some of your testimonies, I suspect that you would probably go back a number of years and you would say, there was a point in time, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, when I was maybe a college student and I was invited to a Bible study. And it was at that Bible study that some initial seeds were planted in my life. And I heard there for the first time a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe didn't respond in that moment, but those seeds were planted And the person who gave that gospel presentation may not even know to this day that you've come to faith in Christ. I've sometimes shared my testimony. I'm literally standing here in front of you today proclaiming the word of God in large part because of a man named Dan Arnold, who was a co-worker of my dad's, who was persistent in inviting our family to church And he wouldn't take no for an answer. And so finally, in time, my dad said, yeah, we'll come. And it was through that that our family came to faith in Jesus Christ, that I was saved as an eight-year-old kid in Garland, Texas. I've tried since that time to find Dan Arnold. Haven't been able to do so. i got a pretty good idea. Dan Arnold has no idea what I'm doing or where I am or any of those things. And yet Dan Arnold had a part And what God has allowed me to do. I think sometimes we discount the fact that God can use us in our brokenness. And in in our, we feel like we're so limited in in the part that we can play. I'm not gifted. I'm not talented. I can't do this. I can't do that. Sometimes it's just a simple invitation. Sometimes it's just a simple word that says, can I tell you for just a moment what Jesus Christ has done in my life and the difference that he's made? It's just that simple. So what we see here is this compelling call. And again, not every evangelistic encounter ends with such stunning success as we see unfolding right here in Sychar. In fact, Jesus himself many times saw very little fruit from his preaching ministry. We know that because in Matthew chapter 11, he pronounces woes upon three communities, Horizon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. The Apostle Paul, when he went into new cities with the gospel, he was met with some faith and also met with much opposition and resentment. Still, the call from Jesus to be engaged in the work of evangelism and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and laboring for the salvation of others is a compelling call. Nothing else we choose to do in this life can be as meaningful, as eternally impactful, or as deeply satisfying as being used by God to bring others into a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing quite like it. And I know some of you right now, you're sitting there just like I used to do, service after service, thinking, but I don't have the gift of evangelism. I know this guy, or I have this friend. Man, they are just, that's their thing. 
they, 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 they can say just the right words. They can, they can tell the gospel in a way that's just like so clear and compelling. I can't do that. Yeah, it, it's something that God's called all of us as followers of Jesus Christ to participate in. It's a compelling call. And it is wonderful to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We can rejoice greatly as we see our efforts, as feeble as they may be, used by God to bear fruit for eternal life. We can also find deep joy and satisfaction even if we don't personally see much outward fruit. We can remember what Jesus said. You hear the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. One sows and another reaps. We can be the sower. In some cases, God in his grace allows us to, 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 to see the fruit of that. Rarely will we be, we be both. In fact, I'm reminded, few men in church history uh, have walked by faith and depended on God like George Mueller. If you've never read the story of George Mueller, I would suggest you do that. He founded many orphanages by faith in England uh, in the late 1800s. Early in his life, Mueller made the acquaintance of three men, and he began to pray for their salvation daily. I mean, his journal indicates that he prayed for these three men specifically for their salvation daily for years. Now, Mueller lived a long time. But when he died, not one of those men had come to faith in Jesus Christ. But the story did not end with the death of George Mueller. Because later, all three of those men did, in fact, come to faith in Jesus Christ. Two of them in their 70s and one of them in his 80s. We, we must never allow delays or discouragements to keep us from doing the will of God and seeking by His grace to accomplish whatever work He has given us to do. That's easy for us to put conditions on it. Lord, I'll obey this compelling call if you'll allow me to. You know, so often God uses us in ways that we will never know this side of eternity. We'll never know. And I wonder this morning, if your testimony is one of faith in Jesus Christ, are you answering that compelling call to go with the gospel? It may be for you to go across the street. It may be you to go over that table in the coffee shop and, and have a word with someone. It may be for you for the first time to initiate that conversation with a family member, a co-worker. What does that look like for you? If we could for just a moment bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, maybe you know about Jesus, but you can't point to a time in your life when you turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you to take that step of faith today. There are others here today who would say, Pastor, that is my testimony. I'm so grateful for knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. But if I'm completely honest, I haven't been faithful to share the good news of the gospel with others. 
I've kind of left the Great Commission to others. That's their task. That's their calling. When in fact, God has called each of us to do our part in seeing others come to know him. So maybe your prayer today would be that God would would reignite within you a heart and a desire to see others come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're reluctant to share your faith because of fear. Maybe it's a fear of rejection. Maybe it's a fear of not knowing exactly what to say. So right now, would you pray that God would use you where you are with what you have to share the good news of the gospel with those around you? That you would look to those relationships and those spheres of influence, the circles of friendship in which you find yourself to share the gospel and to be on mission for him. In just a moment, the choir is going to come this morning. We're going to end the service a little bit differently. I'm going to ask you to stay seated this morning. And as they sing, I'm going to ask that you use this time to pray, to pray for the lost. Maybe God would bring to your mind some individuals. Maybe it's a friend, a family member, co-worker. You would pray for them. Pray that God would use you to perhaps plant a seed in their life. Someone described it this way, every heart with Christ is to be a missionary. Every heart without Christ is a mission field. And the truth is, there are people all around us every day who don't know Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word today. Uh, We thank you for the work that you're doing in hearts and lives, even in ways that we can't see or even imagine. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be wise and faithful stewards of the time and the resources that you've entrusted to us, that we would look up. We would look up, that we would gain a fresh new perspective of the world around us to know and understand how many people there are that do not yet know Jesus. They're bound. In spiritual darkness, Lord, help us to be the salt and the light that you've called us to be. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.